Well, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 1. And as a focal point uh, to the message, a text, we're going to look at verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, The chapter also ends... He called his name Jesus. So this evening, we are thinking of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That immediately connects us with three hymns that we have sung. Uh, The high name of Jesus, the sweet name of Jesus, and the uh, wonder of the name uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder whether you've ever thought or whether you've ever looked into the meaning of your name and asked a question, why did your parents, or perhaps in your family, the grandparents dominated uh, such a choice? What is the significance of a name? In many cultures and in many civilizations, there's actually a naming ceremony or a naming party. The name chosen embodies the hopes, the expectation of parents and grandparents. Or sometimes a name is chosen because this is the desired destiny. The meaning of the name has the desired destiny uh, of the baby that the parents would love them to fulfill. Or sometimes there's an association with a name. A name is chosen because of an association. Uh, How many children in West Wales were were named Wayne uh, or Carwin? I remember a a boy in our class telling us that his brother had been named JP. The surname was Williams. This is a different era for some of you. But names are chosen for different reasons. They have associations and connections. Uh, with family history, sometimes with language, or sometimes with a particular event uh, in the history uh, of a nation. Well, everything I've said and more is true of the name choice that we have here, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I would have read from verse 3 to verse 16, we'd have read nearly 50 names. And so there are other names that uh, dominate Matthew chapter 1. They span years, indeed hundreds of years of history. Most of them are the ancient kings of Judah. But there's no point, there's, there's, there's no doubt that in Matthew's gospel, the spotlight is on the name of Jesus Christ, because it is the name, the person, the work, the ministry, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ that Matthew wants to bring to his readers. So the very book opens, doesn't it? First verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We are introduced to the main character of Matthew's biography and Matthew's gospel. 
Later on in verse uh, 17, we are told of his title. He is to be the Christ. Verse 18, we are told that those names again are brought together, the name and the title, Jesus Christ. We're told in our text he's to be called Jesus. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 1, uh, it is all underlined for us that in obedience to the heavenly visit, uh, Joseph obeys. The name is heaven chosen. The choice of heaven is brought to earth in the name of Jesus Christ. So it is this name that dominates not just chapter 1 of Matthew, but it will be found on every page of this first gospel. Now, I want to suggest that uh, this fact alone, the dominance and supremacy of the name of Jesus, signifies at least four key realities here in chapter 1 of Matthew. And I want to go through those four realities with you. Uh, first of all, what I want to call the pedigree, the pedigree of the name. Now, pedigree means ancestral line, line of descent, lineage. Many of us have surnames, usually, in our Welsh culture, and that surname tells us of the family that we uh, belong to. And we are being told here in Matthew chapter 1 of the pedigree of the name, the pedigree of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first part of the chapter is, uh, recalls for us 14 generations, indeed three periods of 14 generations. It covers about 1,800 years. But what, what's its purpose? Well, let's put it in context, wider context to begin with. The Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi. And uh, between the book of Malachi and Matthew, there is apparently a 400-year period called by many the silent years. God does not speak formally. God, God's voice, as it were, is, is silent. And when God speaks again, when the silence is broken... How does God break the silence? How does God speak? How does God address his people? What does he bring to them? Well, he brings a name. He brings a name. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. This is how God breaks the silence. All the hopes, all the expectations, all the promises, all the offices, king, priest, and uh, prophet of Old Testament. They're all now reaching this wonderful culmination in the Gospel of Matthew. There have been names. Indeed, the whole of the Old Testament is full of names. And here, as I've said, there are names. But it is this name, and it is in this name, that Matthew begins his wonderful Gospel. Now, with such an announcement, with such a way to close a period of silence, we should be asking the question, well, what is it about this name? What is it about the pedigree of this name? Why should we listen to the voice of Jesus? Why should we 
listen to the teaching of Jesus, which will come in Matthew's Gospel? Why should we spend any time thinking about the life of Jesus? Well, Matthew's Gospel tells us there is here a pedigree. So look at the immediate context. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And these are the two titles that Matthew gives Jesus. On the one hand, he's the son of David. On the other hand, he's the son of Abraham. Now, if you were a Jew, you would know that David, according to verse 6, was the king. And indeed, it was to David that God made the promise that from his family, from his ancestral line, from his dynasty, would one day come the final king. There would be a kingdom established. There would be a throne. There would be a government. And that government would not be bound by time. It would not be bound by the limitations of one place. It would be an eternal government. It would be an everlasting kingdom. And the king who sat upon that throne of David, he himself would be eternal and everlasting. So, Matthew is saying the promise of David is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But if that were not enough, David then, uh, Matthew goes on to say the son of Abraham. Now you might know that uh, Abraham is the person in the Old Testament uh, where God makes a promise to him. Uh, God commits himself to Abraham that if he believes, if he trusts, if he takes that step of faith, that one step of faith is going to have implications, not just for Abraham and his family and a nation that would come from him, Israel, but that from Abraham would come a seed, an offspring, a child, and through that line, the nations would be blessed. God was going to unite all peoples, all nations, all tongues and all languages from the seed and the offspring of Abraham. And what Matthew is simply saying is, this is the ultimate seed. This is the offspring. This is the root. This is the branch of that wonderful line from Abraham. So what binds the son of David and the son of Abraham together is a wonderful, wonderful covenant promise. God entered into covenant with David. He entered into covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant of mercy. It was not because David was any better than any other person and that Abraham had more potential than anybody else. God chose them in mercy and in grace. And what Matthew is saying God's mercy and grace is now to be extended. And how is that to be done? In Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is now to be the one who brings the blessing of David, who brings the blessing of Abraham into the world. Matthew is saying here that in this genealogy, mainly of kings, the final king has arrived. And in the family of Abraham, the final son, the final seed of Abraham has arrived. But there's even more than that. I think that we can say, on the basis of verse 1, if we were reading verse 1 in the original uh, language, the book of the genealogy, the record of the genealogy, it actually means in the original language, the genesis the beginning 
of the record of genealogy. And apparently, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, has exactly, in the original language, the same little phrase. The genesis of the heavens and the earth, says Genesis 2, chapter 4. Matthew is saying here, the genesis of the beginning of Jesus Christ. What's Matthew doing? Well, he's most probably saying to us, if you wondered, if you stood amazed and said, Almighty God, the heavens and the earth declare your glory, the heavens and the earth and the genealogy and the genesis and the beginning and the origin of the created world that you made was splendid, was marvelous and wonderful, but by the time we get to chapter 3, there is a collapse, there is a fracture, there is a fall, there is disobedience, there's a curse. Matthew Chapter 1 and verse 1 is saying, there's a new beginning. There's a new genesis. And it is on the basis of the genesis, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God is going to extend his blessings, not only to, uh, not only to fulfill uh, his word, to bring a new heaven and a new earth into being, but he wants us to know that he's going to do it in a person. Jesus Christ is the captain. Jesus Christ is the head of this new genesis, this new heaven, and this new earth. So as we step into this Christmas season, we need to remember all this. This is big. This is the big story. This is the mega narrative, if you like. This is the big story of everything that is happening in our world. It's not a small thing. It's not an insignificant thing. It's mighty, it's great, it's big. And the wonderful thing, as you'll find in Matthew's Gospel, is that Jesus Christ connects, connects his disciples, connects those that in their families come to believe. He connects various individuals to the story. They join in this great moment. They come into the family of David. They come into the family of Abraham. Our father Abraham, says the apostle, we are in David's line by faith. We are made children of God. We have a part. We have a part in the story. I met a little boy this week. <clears throat> and he came home very excited from school. And he said, Grandad, well, I just told you who he is now. Grandad, he says, I- I've got a part in the nativity. I said, oh, I said, who are you? So he told me who he was. And then the next question is, where do we get the costume? What has he got to say? What night is it going to happen? Where do we need to be at the right time? It's all dominated family discussion for 10 minutes. He has a part in the story. As the Gospel of Matthew opens, we're being told here, major character on the stage of history is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he will not stand alone on the stage. He's come as the captain of a new humanity. He's come as the captain and the leader and the master of the 12 disciples. And from the witness of these 12 disciples, by faith, amazingly, 2,000 years plus later, if you believe tonight, you're in the story. You've got a part. There's a significance. There's a purpose. There's a destiny. There's meaning. There's cohesion to our little stories, to our churches, to our witness to the little part of the kingdom where God has placed us. It's all joined together. Colossians 1.28, it all holds together in this Lord Jesus 
what a wonderful pedigree. And you and I, by faith, can be adopted into this great family of faith. The pedigree of the name of Jesus. But secondly, the personhood. The personhood. What about this person? All the men and the few women mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, of course, were, were real men. They were real women. They are humans of flesh and blood. There was a real physical, bodily existence uh, to their shared community life and family life and working life. They represent men and women who had joys, sorrows, suffering. They worked. They were people who had real emotions. The point in this is that these people all represent the real humanity that Jesus came to be a part of. God here sends his son to be a part of humanity, of these families, of this nation, of these people. Jesus comes and he comes to be a part of. In other words, these people and Jesus, they were not phantoms. They were not ghosts or aliens with superhero bodies and exploits. Particularly as we go through the list, we see they have sadly a history of shame and sorrow. The list mentions four women. Tamar, she was raped. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess, a Gentile, and she was widowed. And Bathsheba is not even named. Such was the shame of her situation. Uriah's wife, abused, humiliated. Matthew's making a point, isn't he? Jesus came to save these people, and he didn't do it at a distance. He came into their family line. He came into the family tree. He came in as a real human, a real man. There was a bodily, a real bodily existence for the Lord Jesus Christ. His parents, Mary, has a real baby. And Matthew's Gospel will show us the whole range of human emotions, trials and challenges that will be there for the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another aspect to the person of Christ. He is a real man. But Matthew's Gospel, based on what we read in Isaiah chapter 7, also has another nature. We're being introduced to here here to something that is supernatural, it's mysterious. I won't be able to fully explain it, and I'm grateful to say nobody else before me or after me, after me will be able to fully explain it. But we see here that the seed to be generated in Mary's womb is, is of divine origin, implanted by the Holy Spirit. The holiness and perfection of God is to be a real part of the baby and the developing child and the man's nature. So here is a blend of two natures, one person, but two natures. The nature of man, the real nature, 100% nature of man, but also the nature of God. The conception, it's a virgin conception in the womb. He's God, he's man, he's God. And this wonderful blend, and this wonderful harmony. 
and nothing is diminished. His manhood is not diminished. His godhead is not diminished. There was a young girl from mid Wales, 18th century, and she saw it so clearly. Two natures in one person. They are joined, unblemished. They're in perfect harmony. The man who is God. C.S. Lewis calls this the grand miracle of incarnation. God condescends. God the invisible becomes visible in Jesus Christ in human form. God the immortal becomes mortal in Jesus Christ. The God of eternity comes to live in time and space. One of the translations of the Bible, well, not particularly a translation, paraphrasing the message, God moves in to our neighborhood. He moves into the neighborhood of humanity. What a wonderful person. So the pedigree of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Well, come back with me to uh, the text. I want us thirdly to see the power of Jesus, the power of And the power, we are told here, is salvation power. You will call his name Jesus. Because the name Jesus denotes to the rescue. God is sending a rescuer. He will save. Notice how definite. Notice how absolute is the promise. He will save. The whole of the Bible tells us that salvation is God's sovereign activity. Salvation, says the book of Jonah, belongs in every aspect. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But how is the Lord to bring that salvation to men and women? Well, if you go through the Old Testament, you find that God raises up deliverers. Indeed, one of them had the name, the Old Testament name, for Jesus is Joshua. Joshua was brought to deliver the people from the bondage and the captivity, the final stages, to lead them by conquest into the promised land. What Matthew is saying, here is our Joshua, here is our conqueror, here is our hero, here is our deliverer, here is our rescuer, and he will rescue us. In the Old Testament, it was mainly from the external enemy, the external enemy of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans were in Israel at this particular time. And therefore many people thought that this deliverer would be a political, military deliverer. But this verse in Matthew tells us he's come to deliver us from the root problem, the big problem. The big problem is not the external enemy, but it's the internal enemy. Throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we are told, sin is my greatest enemy. And I need to be delivered from that sin. Take the long list of all those mentioned here in this chapter. And you find the sin, the rebellion, the disobedience. Everything is on sad display here. The hatred, the jealousy, the lying, the dishonoring of parents idolatry, sexual immorality. It's all over these names and their history. 
but the Bible acts as a mirror. And we look into the Bible and we see ourselves. I see my sin. I see my shame. I see my natural inclination towards disobedience and rebellion. You see, Matthew's gospel is going to tell us exactly the same as every other gospel. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We need to be delivered from sin. The Bible talks about sin as slavery. We're in chains. The Bible talks about sin as imprisonment. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night, says the hymn writer. The Bible says sin is like living in the dark and you can't even find the switch. Sin is selfishness. You've heard perhaps the children's story. The shortest word, S-I, I. Hang on the I, me. It's me. I heard a pastor say the other day that he reminds himself every day as he goes to the mirror to shave. He looks in the mirror and he says to himself, public enemy number one. Public enemy number one is not out there, but he's in here. We need to be delivered from our sin. We need a mighty rescuer. But the good news of this verse, the good news of this chapter, the good news of this gospel, and the good news of this New Testament is God, Almighty God, has come to deliver, to save, and to rescue. And he's done it in a person who's a real man, so he's able to identify with us. He doesn't share in our sin, but the Bible says he will carry our sin. He will remove our sin. He will pay the penalty and the punishment for our sin. He will experience the wrath that our sin deserves. Matthew's gospel will take us there to the cross of Calvary. But he will save us. He will rescue us. We will find in him a hiding place. We will find in him a refuge. We will find in him forgiveness and peace that flows from this wonderful salvation. You notice here, he will. He will. I love the quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, I love. He loved many things, but he said, I love the I will and the I shalls of God. Spurgeon says, because if you read I will, good as done. It's done. He will do it. He will do it because of the power of who he is, his person. He will do it because he is man and he is God, mighty God, mighty man. He will do it because of the obedience of his life in our place. He will do it because of his power to lay down that life and to extinguish all the wrath and all the punishment of God that we deserve. He'll do it because he is the willing sacrifice. He is the lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Matthew's gospel, as it goes on, will call disciples and they'll, the Lord Jesus Christ will simply say to them, come, come follow me. Stop following your own ambitions. Stop following your own desires. Stop following your own self-righteousness. Stop following your own religious paths. Follow me. 
Matthew's Gospel will call us to trust in this Saviour. The alternative is bleak, isn't it? Are we going to trust in ourselves? Are we going to trust in any of these kings and their representatives in our day and in our generation? The big names, the big celebrities, the big politicians, or the small politicians? We're going to trust in them. We're going to trust in ideas. We're going to trust in philosophy. We're going to trust in education. We're going to trust in religious merit. There's Jesus. You trust in him. You put all your trust in him. You put all your faith in him. He only can save. He only can deliver you from your sin. You can't trust in any other power. You can't trust in any other name. No one compares with Jesus Christ. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Saved in Jesus, the power. We've seen the power We've seen the person, we've seen the pedigree. Final, finally, the presence of God in Jesus. There's another name, isn't there? You call his name Jesus, but later on we are told there's another name we can use. And that name is one of the most beautiful on the pages of Scripture. Uh, Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, we are told, means God with us. If you were a Jew, you would have believed that God was with you in tabernacle. God was with you in the temple. God was in the law. God was in the offices, priest, prophet, king. God was in creation. But here we are told God is now located. God is accessible. God is present in Jesus Christ. Wherever you find Jesus, there is God and the Holy Spirit. The three are mentioned, aren't they, in this chapter. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All located and made accessible, brought near to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So just to apply in closing, if this is true, if God is with us in Christ... Well, let's start tonight. Some of you are going home. Well, you all need to go home sometime. And some of you may go home and you're alone. But you're not alone, are you? On the basis of this verse and of this chapter, we are told God is with his people. God is with his people in loneliness. God is with those people who have lost loved ones. God is with people who are struggling. God is with us as we bear our burdens to help us carry them. God is with us as we start what may be a difficult week, the job, the workplace. God is with us in family. God is with us as parents. God is with us in middle age, in old age. In our church now, we have to say in very old age. God is with us. You have to stand in a funeral. You have to be there, and it's difficult. The promise of this verse is God's gone before you. God's coming with you. God's behind you. God's all around you. God is with us. Because the God who is with us is the God who is for us. He's the God who is in us. And the rest of Matthew's gospel will tell us Jesus is with us to the end of the age. Jesus always. Jesus forever. God will not forsake us. God will not leave us. It's a wonderful verse 
in Proverbs 18. There is a name, and the righteous run to that name in the day of trouble. There is a name. Well, here's his name. Jesus is the name, and we can run. And we'll find their welcome. We'll find their strength. We'll find their grace. We'll find their comfort. We'll find in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, that there is strength and power and energy and help and comfort, not just now, but as I've said, forever. Emmanuel, always. Emmanuel, forever and ever. What is heaven? Well, heaven is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all his people, and they will be together forever. As we can close with the words of the psalmist this evening, may his name, is this your desire tonight as a church fellowship and as a Christian, may his name endure forever. As long as the sun shall last, may all nations be blessed through him and call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does marvellous things. Praise be to his glorious name forever and forever. Do you have an aim for this Advent season? Well, there's one aim you can have. You want to share the name of Jesus. You want to share the name of Jesus in the way you live, in the way you talk. You want to literally share his name with those in family, workplace, and community. And you want others to come to believe and trust in the name of Jesus. Indeed, tonight, there may be somebody here. You may believe, you may trust, you may accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may come to say in the hymn we're going to close with, Oh, how I love the name of Jesus. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, with all the voices that are around us, with all the thoughts, with all the ideas, we all, with all the names of politicians and celebrities, oh Heavenly Father, may the name of Jesus Christ be more dear to us than ever before. May we love the name, the person, the work, the everything of the sufficiency and the supremacy of the name of Jesus Christ. May we, until the very end, be good witnesses to the one whose name we bear. We ask in his name. Amen.